Hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of our new podcast, Teach Me Something. Um, as I said, this is our very first episode, so I'll just take a few minutes to do an introduction. I'm Melissa, and I'm here with my husband, Everett. That's me. Um, and I started this podcast because I was interested in learning new things, but I'm also kind of lazy, so I needed uh, motivation, we should say, some kind of actual reason to look into things that interested me, um, because I wasn't going to spend all this time researching and then just like not telling anyone all the cool stuff I learned. So this way, I just kind of have a reason to look into all these things and learn something new every every week, which I think will be really cool. And I'm, then I'm going to teach you all, Everett, the world, whoever listens to my podcast, about whatever new topic I found. Um, so I'm just going to follow whatever I think is cool and go down any rabbit holes I, I wish. And I have to say that mostly my topics of interest will tend to be science, uh, animals especially, other types of nature, ancient kind of mythology and civilizations, and maybe some like food stuff. I don't know. Um, what kind of things would you talk about, Everett? I think my topics will range primarily in the realm of business and technology, probably games and general interests, maybe some pop culture you and teach music. Me, yeah, teach me video game stuff because I think you can make an interesting narrative or you know story about how certain games and game types and tell me all the game terms I seem to get wrong all the time. <laughs> can never remember and ask you every time. <laughs> Um, so yeah, hopefully Everett will come up with some episodes and teach me something. I hope to have some guests on the show, my friends and family who are probably the only ones listening the whole time, but I hope you te teach me some cool things as well. Um, and so going forward, I'm going to, you know, try to do some really interesting episodes for humor just coming up, something about bees. But today... Today I want to talk about Carthage and the reason I kind of that came up and interested me in the first place is because of the podcast I'm binging really hard right now called Let's Talk About Myths Baby by Liv Albert and an episode came up about um, Queen Dido and the founding of Carthage and I thought I've heard of Carthage I knew it was a place uh, yeah and that's all I got so I, I thought maybe I should learn some more about it. Well, I think that sounds very interesting. Melissa, how about you teach me something? Awesome. Uh, so let's dive right in and talk about Carthage. The first thing we have to talk about is Phoenicia. And um, so I'm going to start with two disclaimers. And that one, uh, one is that I am not an expert in any of the things I'm going to be talking about, which is kind of the point. I'm trying to use the best sources I can, but without, you know, access to scholarly articles and actual journals and... I, I'm doing my best and it might not be perfect and I encourage anyone to correct me if I get anything wrong because that's how you learn. Um, and a second disclaimer is that we don't really know anything about Phoenicia and Carthage from their own words and their own sources. Um, we pretty much only know about them from people that were their enemies. So I don't know, like, their rivals. I don't know if you can trust those sources you have to take everything with a grain of salt. Like the Greeks, Romans, and Hebrews kind of wrote about them in their mythologies and their histories. Um, but can we believe it? That's a big question mark. So uh, keep that in mind when you're listening to all this information. We have some archaeological 
evidence, um, but we don't know a lot. Well, I'm glad that you pointed out that somebody knows something, because for a moment there, I thought you were pointing out that neither of us know anything about them. And then I was getting worried about what you were going to teach me. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like here. Baseline's down here, and I'm like here, which is not going to work in a podcast medium. I'm trying it looks to have three inches inch, higher. Inch gap than baseline. Um, it's okay. So. I'm at baseline. Well, I've heard of Carthage. There you go. That's and I've my heard baseline. of Romans. Yeah. So there we go. Have you heard of Phoenicia? I had actually. Okay. So great. Cause we're going to start there. Um, Phoenicia is a name given to them by Homer. So again, this is the Greeks naming the Phoenicians. I don't know what they call themselves. Um, <laughs> the Phoenician the Phoenici- us. we're gonna call them an empire because they were organized in city-states like the Greeks but there is a lot of doubt if they actually felt that way about themselves like they were an empire or if they are just had their allegiance to their city-state of origin and then they didn't really have an overarching kind of structure that they were part of um, well what what dates are we talking about here uh, so Phoenic- the Phoenician Empire-, Empire existed from probably 2500 BCE to 64 BCE, which is the fall of Phoenicia. Um, but they really weren't that powerful until maybe 1100 BCE and kind of lost their power about 200 uh, BCE. So uh, they kind of got their powerful position due to the late Bronze Age collapse which is a historical event I also just learned about. And I really like the quote I found that it was violent, sudden, and culturally disruptive. So societies specifically like the Egyptians and the Hittites, they all kind of declined in power and that allowed the Phoenicians to rise up and um, be the dominant power. Um, And so Phoenicia was located along the Mediterranean Sea, along the coast where Lebanon is now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of the city-states that Phoenicians founded are actually still cities now, like the longest constantly inhabited cities in the whole world. So that's pretty cool. Um, so some of the cities, for example, we'll talk about uh, Byblos. Byblos was a city-state in ancient Phoenicia. And the cool little fact I found about Byblos is that that's where the Bible gets its name from. So Byblos is a Greek word, and it was basically Greek for papyrus. And they called Papyrus Byblos because it was exported to the Aegean through the port at Byblos. And the word Bible basically just means the papyrus book. Okay. Yeah. Some other uh, city-states in Phoenicia or Beirut, which, as you may or may not know, is still and the current capital of Lebanon. Um, Sidon and Tyr are other important city-states. Uh, Tyr was like their capital, if they had a capital, which they didn't. It was just their most important base and hub of operations. Um, it's kind of like in Canada, the assumed capital being Toronto. <laughs> well, it's not actually. Correct. It's okay. exactly that. Understood. Except for the fact that the issue here is they didn't really have capitals and maybe didn't even think of themselves as one people. But where? No, no. What I'm hearing from you is, is Tier is the Toronto. Oh, <laughs> uh, we'll go with that for now. Of the Phoenicians, that is. <laughs> so, cool things about Phoenicia. They were like a dominant commercial power because of maritime trading. Um, the Greeks said that the Phoenicians were the inventors of merchant ships. They like revolutionized the way ships worked. They made a, a lot of innovations so that they could travel really far and 
um, had a total monopoly on the whole seafaring trading thing. They invented something called the cutwater, which just goes on the front of uh, the hull of the ship and breaks up the water. Um, but that let them sail much farther and much faster and be more maneuverable. So that was cool. Um, they, they did like regular 4,000 kilometer journeys from Phoenician um, lands to Spain and on the Mediterranean Sea. That's pretty cool. Well, then I assume that at that time, your ability to trade any sort of product would mean that you have significantly more capital leverage and economic leverage. And if they're competing against people who are traveling by land, that they would have the upper hand of being able to go like across the Mediterranean or along the Mediterranean and therefore like amass riches faster than other nations. They had access to every resource imaginable. Right. And that was not a thing back then before globalization. So that was pretty cool. Um, so because of all this seafaring, they are actually, I learned a new word here. They're what's known as a thalassocracy. So from the Greek thalassocratia, thalata, sea, and kratia, power. So um, yeah, again, cool new word. And uh, another awesome thing about Phoenicia is that their language and their alphabet clearly spread all over the Mediterranean because of their seafaring ways. And so the Phoenician alphabet's actually our oldest verified alphabet that we know about. Um, and that's pretty cool. So the next thing we'll talk about is Tyre. Like I said, Tyre was a really important, influential city-state. And in the Iron Age, maybe around the 10th century BCE, um, Tyre really blossomed in their power, let's say. Um, Phoenicians were not one for colonialism and, and all of that. They pretty much just made ports just to facilitate their trading, but they didn't expand their territories on purpose. Um, one of the key elements of a thalassocracy often is that they don't have inland interior exploration. They right. just stick to the coastal areas. Um, but Tyr all of a sudden comes on and they expand their territory. They actually um, invaded and incorporated one of those other city-states I told you about, Sidon, um, took took that whole land area, greatly expanded their territory. And um, they're, like I said, extremely important merchants. So they're, we're going to take a, a big side journey here and talk about something that Tyr is to this day very famous for, which is their fine textiles and their dyes. So Tyrian purple, you may or may not have heard of it. Um, and I know that the concept of purple being associated with royalty is, is a well-known thing, but it goes back to even this day. Not that I find Tyrian purple to be super purple. I looked that up. It's pretty red. It's a reddish really? purple. <laughs> Very reddish purple. Okay. Yeah, it was that interesting? Super interesting. Yeah, when I think I of royal purple, I think of that traditional, like, dark purple that's very distinctly purple, though. Yeah, Tyrian purple's not that purple. Um, Google it, guys. So, the cool thing about, well, okay, side note, <laughs> I like animal stuff. I have a zoology degree, so I will look into animal stuff, whatever. So, this big side note is because of my zoology nerd side. Mm -hmm. um, so, the dye. How'd they get the dye? Snails. Predatory sea snails in the family Myricidae. Of course. Mm -hmm. You had to be Myricidae, right? Those uh, Murex snails. That's very what I was about to say. So, um, so Bolinus yeah. brandaris was specifically a snail they used a lot of to get the Tyrian purple dye. 
Um, but they used other snails in the same kind of family to get other dyes. So Hexaplex trunculus actually made a blue color. Um, and they dyed blue garments for ritual purposes and ceremonies. Sorry, sorry. What was that snail again? Hexaplex trunculus. Of course. The Huffalumps. Got mm-hmm. it. Okay. I mean, I didn't look up what it means, but Hexa, you know, six. six something. Something trunculus. Um, I don't have time. This podcast cannot go on for hours and hours. Okay. I like Latin and I could have gone into what all these words mean, but no one cares. Well. Most people <clears throat> don't care. At least <laughs> one person cares. I'm certain they're out there. <laughs> if you are, let me know. So, yeah, they also had um, a red dye that they got from snails as well. Um, and some cool snail things. So they needed like thousands of snails to make any of this dye. So, for example, 12,000 snails yielded 1.4 grams of dye. In like a powdered form? No. It was a liquid. 1.4 grams of a liquid. How much How much can you dye with that? Good question. So when you're super powerful in the ancient times, you got the purple robes. And Tyrian mm-hmm. purple was so expensive. So like... For example, so expensive. We say something is worth its weight in gold. Tyrian purple was worth 15 to 20 times its weight in gold. Okay. Um, so expensive that only the you know most powerful, most rich people were going to get a full Tyrian purple robe. Right. Under that, the very powerful but not most powerful got a stripe along the hem of their garment, toga, whatever, sure. of Tyrian purple. So that 1.4 grams could dye one row with the stripe. The stripe on one row. So I don't even know how many snails, if that's 12,000 snails, how many snails you need to make a whole robe's worth of dye, but that sounds tough. Um, well, and you got to hope that you're really good at, and steady, you know, like holding your wine or <laughs> walking down muddy paths or something. <laughs> if you stain those robes, you're not getting another one. <laughs> yeah, the amount of gold required for that is... Too high. Right. Um, And to make the dye. So you could actually milk the compound out of these snails if you poke them over and over. Because that's aggressive and they excrete it to defend themselves. Mm. Um, But as you can imagine, the manpower, that's just not practical. And they didn't really care about conservation of the environment back then. So they would rather just crush them. So they take huge vats. They lead vats, actually. Boiled the snails for like days. Then crushed them. Um, apparently the odor was terrible, like just disgusting. Um, (laughs) they boiled, Boiled they're crushed. And then when they exposed them to heat and light, like UV, that produced the color. They were colorless, like after the crushing and boiling. And it's that heat and light component, which I always wonder, how did they figure that out? Who crushed up a snail? It was like, oh, there's nothing there. What if I heated it up and put it in the sun? Like, Obviously, it was more of an accidental discovery. Yeah, like it just, I don't know how. a snail on a rock out in the middle of the sun or something and some stained purple rock liquid afterwards. Sounds very appetizing. Mm-hmm. Would have been an interesting life back then. Sure. Um, to continue this side street we found ourselves on, I will tell you that this dye is an organobromine compound. Ooh. Mm. Um, okay. <laughs> they use it as part of their predatory behavior, you know, to hunt things. Um, it, it has a sedatory... Sed- sed- sedation? Sedatory effect? I don't... It sedates things. Um, They use it to defend themselves. They use it actually as an antimicrobial lining on their egg masses. 
Um, so that's, you know, why they make it in the first place. But enough about snails. I think that's enough about snails. Okay. I, I would love to talk about snails, but that's not what we're here for right now. We're going to talk about Carthage. We're finally getting to Carthage. Um, Great. <laughs> now that we talked about Tyr, we're going to talk about Carthage. So both historically and mythologically, Carthage was founded by Phoenicians from Tyr. And I looked this up on a map. It's about a 2,300-kilometer sail. Wow. As the whale swims. Or the crow swims? Maybe. I think they would drown. No. Mm. No, they don't. Do whales fly? I have to check the sources on that one. Underwater, I'm going to say no, What's the difference between swimming and flying? Just the medium, I guess. Friction? Um, (laughs) So Carthage means new city. Cart hadashed. Well, New that's city. original. In Phoenician. <laughs> See, I wrote that in my notes to make a joke about how it was unoriginal. You stole my joke. Typically. But the second true. part of my joke was that maybe in, you know, 800 BCE, that, that was a lot more original. <laughs> probably not, though. It's probably not their first city or their second city, my guess. No, but it's a new one. It is a new one. I guess there aren't a lot of nations out there that got very original. I mean, we have York and then New York. Well, but you know that New York used to be New Amsterdam, right? <laughs> and we have Amsterdam <laughs> and New Amsterdam. See, you're just filling in the blanks for me. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was first doing my research, I was like, oh, founded in 814 BCE. Um, and then just now, I found a thing that said, that's probably wrong. Hmm. All the sources say it's it's that, but it's it's probably wrong. It's probably made like 100 years later than that. Possibly. So maybe we're looking more around, you know, 7, 7.15. I don't know. Something like that. Okay. Um, and yeah, like I said, a colony of Tyr, but it gained its independence, you know, maybe a century after it was founded. Um, and it was, lo- so the location of Carthage. I'll try to paint you a word picture. To know, for this to work, you're going to have to have a mental map in your brain of North Africa. I'll, I'll close my eyes. You take me you away. You picture North Africa. Okay. Got it. We are in Tunisia, present-day Tunisia, the tip of North Africa, mm-hmm. just across the Mediterranean Sea from Italy. Mm-hmm. I measured this as well. It was about 250 kilometers from Sicily and 600 kilometers from Rome across the sea there. Okay. Um, so really close to all the happening places back then. Um, 16 kilometers east of modern-day Tunis is where the ancient wreckage... Wreckage? That's not right. Ruins? Ruins. Ruins. The ancient ruins are... Um, if you don't know, Tunis is the capital of Tunisia. And so I was thinking, how big could a could an old city, ancient city be? I don't know populations of ancient cities. Uh, again, it's a clearly an estimate, but the estimated population around 300 BCE at kind of the height of Carthage was like over half a million people. You didn't check the census? I'm going to get into this, but Rome did their best to make sure no such records ever were to exist. Of course. Um, go Rome. So, historically, there's not really a reason they founded Carthage. They're just, like, making colonies to use as trading ports, and it was just the perfect spot. Um, so, it's it's in the middle of the Gulf of Tunis, which shelters it from, apparently, there was infamously violent storms in the region. So it really um, was a great location for them to keep the storms and waves and all those away. So all of, again, all of you people at home, I know podcasting is an audio 
type of medium. But Everett, you can have the benefit of looking at my map if you want. Excellent. <laughs> so the other part that makes it so good location-wise um, is that it was right where the Strait of Sicily is. And the Strait of Sicily is literally just the part of the Mediterranean Sea between Tunisia and Sicily. But it was a really key um, area of water facilitating the east-west trade across the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and that, of course, is important because it's on two major trade routes. That east-west trade route, which is kind of between the Tyrian colony of Cadiz in southern Spain and the rest of the Phoenician colonies like Tyr. Um, and so they got raw materials from Cadiz and they sent them to Tyr. And then the other major trade route was between North Africa and the North Mediterranean, like Sicily, Italy, Greece. Um, so they are right Both on those two places. major trade routes. And yet another thing that was pretty great about the location was, so it's a, it's a gulf. It's a semicircular gulf. And then in the middle of the semicircular gulf, there is another gulf. Um, so it's just like this super protected harbor. And behind it, behind the city, are these freshwater lakes. So you get freshwater, you know, water, fish, all that cool stuff. You get the ocean, and then you also have only a narrow strip of land because of the lakes for anyone to come at you from behind. So really defensible, really great location. Put a city here. Okay, that's kind of boring. <laughs> so I'll tell the cooler story, the much more interesting story, which is the mythological founding of Carthage. Um, in mythology, again, side note, I got this basics of this story from Liv Albert's Let's Talk About Myths Baby podcast. And if anyone wants to know more of this story, they should definitely listen to her episode about that. Um, even more about Carthage is in Virgil's Aeneid, um, which was a story in Latin written by the Romans, Virgil's Roman. And it talks about Carthage and the founding uh, quite a bit. So one thing that's super cool is mythologically Carthage was founded by a woman. And that really never happens, mythologically speaking. Mm -hmm. So that's awesome. Um, her, She's Queen Dido to the Romans. Phoenician, she was Alyssa. I don't know why those things are so different, but it's probably just because the Romans like to just make up their own I was going to say, those things don't sound too... They're not, Similar I don't to think that they come from each other at I would, all. I wouldn't have made that leap or that guess right. between those two things. Right. So here's the thing. Do I do I refer to her as Alyssa or do I refer to her as Dido? I'm going to go with Dido because I okay. like to say that name better. It is more fun. Dido. Um, so there's no proof that she was actually a real historical figure, by the way. However, there is proof that her younger brother, Pygmalion, was a real historical king of Tyr. So that's kind of cool. I kind of wonder, kind of wonder about that. Maybe Dido was a person. Probably not. <laughs> um, so they're born in Tyr, which is, by the way, where mythologically Cadmus, founder of Thebes, is also from. Right. Happen in place. So their dad, Belus, is the king. And he tells them, you guys are going to jointly rule this kingdom. Side by side, brother and sister. That always goes well in every single instance of that happening. Well, here's the reason that it's not going to go well. Hmm. You're it's not, disproving my theory here. It's not going to go well because Pygmalion 
will not be equal to a woman. That's not okay. Ancient men, what can I say? Current men, what can I say? Um, so I just want to, you know, I hope this is not too much plagiarism or anything, but there was a quote that Liv said in her podcast about Pygmalion and it made me giggle really hard. So I'm going to repeat it, which is that Pygmalion seemed to take the first syllable of his name as a serious personality trait. Well, he is named that way. He has to live up to it. Yes, exactly. So again, very bare bones retelling of this story, but Pygmalion is scheming on how to take power. At the time, Dido marries a priest, Sicaeus. Sicaeus is rich and powerful. Priests were rich and powerful back then. <laughs> a lot of influence, a lot of power, a lot of gold. Pygmalion gets worried and jealous and he wants the gold, but also he just thinks that he'll give her more power than she already has. So, so he hasn't killed. Um, Reasonable. Yeah. Dido is pretty sure he'll kill her now. So she comes up with a plan and she sends him a letter telling him how full of grief she is and she can't stand to stay at their home that she shared with her husband. It's too sad. Can she come home to tear to the family home? And oh yeah, she'll bring all the gold. So please let her come home. So of course, Pygmalion's like, all right, I love you. Please come home. Clearly Dido didn't know that he was the one that killed... He thinks Dido didn't know that he was the one that had her husband mm. killed. Is clearly what's happening here because I don't. Otherwise, he's just dumb. But so, did she think that he thought that she thought that the gold was there, but not killed by the other guy? That she thought that he thought. You know, assign you to answer that question. Well, I'm gonna go with he didn't think so. Okay, great, great. Uh, so. He sends ships and servants to help her. She loads up all of her... Well, she didn't do it. The servants load up all the wealth, all the gold, everything onto the ship. When she knows Pygmalion can see them, she has the servants throw bags full of sand into the water. Which, he didn't know what she was throwing in the water, right? Like, they're far away. And then she sends a loud prayer to heaven to her husband, Sicaeus, that she's giving him this offering of his wealth in heaven so that he can have it and makes a big production over over it to make him think that she threw the stuff overboard. Not only does he think that, now he thinks his servants were in on it and helped her on purpose. And the servants know that he thinks that. Is it confusing again? Anyways, they're not going to go to Pygmalion and be slaughtered. So they go with Dido. Hmm. So now Dido has people and lots of money, and she sails off. Now you're probably thinking, what's to stop Pygmalion from coming after her and all of that. Um, but don't worry, there's an omen. Mm, of course. Their mother tells Pygmalion, don't do it, there's an omen. The omen is that you would be punished worse than any other if you interfere, because Dido is destined to found the richest city in the world. Which is, again, a pretty cool destiny for a woman in mythology. Yeah, that's um, typical. So, basically, you know, they sail, they pick up some people along the way. They stopped on Cyprus and they spoke to a priest of Astart, who, uh, this is a new one, don't giggle. Astart is a goddess of war, but also sexual love. She was worshipped by, like, the Hittites, Canaanites, Egyptians, all those, all those people. 
Um, and in mytho- in the mythology, they a uh, bunch of the Cypriots just come with them. They get on the boat, come with them, pick up some more people from some other islands. So they end up with this very like mixed culture, blended families, refugees. Pretty cool place to start a city from. And uh, so they find this land. They think it looks pretty cool. Park their ships, get onto land, and find the local chieftain. Of course. Iarbis. Hmm. And then Dido, like, I'm not going to tell the whole thing here. Go listen to the podcast. Look it up. She basically tricks Iarbis to giving her a ton of land. And he was so impressed by her trick that he's just like, yeah, good one. You got me. Have all this land. And uh, that's Carthage for you. But was it a trick or an illusion? No, it was totally a trick. Okay. It was totally a trick. Do you want me to tell you the trick? Sure. Okay. He asked, she said to him, well, he said he'd give her, you know, a small favor, whatever. She was a hot woman. He, she said, I just really need a tiny bit of land. And he said, mm-hmm. okay, how much land? He says, or she goes, well, just enough to stretch an ox hide over. And he's like, okay, totally. And then she has her people cut it into the thinnest, smallest strips imaginable and tie oh. them all together and stretch it around. It wasn't, city. it wasn't blue, the giant ox. It, uh, I mean, he still wouldn't be big enough for. No, let's think go. How, no, think of how much more land she could have got with the same strategy. All right, just with a bigger ox. You tell her that. I'll go back and try. Um, so mythologically, again, Carthage was the favorite city of Juno, Hera, mm-hmm. um, and again featured prominently in Virgil's The Aeneid. But anyways. Let's actually talk about Carthage for the first real time in this episode, half an hour in. Um, so the thing is, Carthage had a lot of good things about it. I did find some not cool things about child sacrifice, but who knows if that was really a thing or not. It's really, again, tough to know. Well, yeah, especially when everything we know about Carthage is written down by their enemies. Exactly. Of course, they would gain from portraying them as barbarians and savages. So Carthage was ruled by a king uh, who consulted with a big committee of the wealthy and powerful merchants. And so it's kind of like a monarchy, but as time went on, it became more and more of an oligarchy where just the powerful rich merchants were just in charge of everything. And uh, one thing you may know about Carthage is they used elephants in war. You probably have, this is probably the one thing people have heard about Carthage is, you know, Hannibal. Yes. I'll get to Hannibal soon. But yeah, they trained North African elephants to um, participate in in warfare. They used them for frontal assaults and anti-cavalry protection. And uh, the North African elephant is a small elephant, probably the size of a forest elephant. But it was still an elephant. Yeah. So, you know, very cool. I still wouldn't really want to mess with it, personally. (laughs) No. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna stay far away from a war elephant, okay? I'm no Legolas with my cool arrow shield. Yeah, I was gonna say my bow skills are not quite there yet. Um, so Carthage was unique in, in t- like ancient times for separating their political and military offices. Um, they inherited the trade in Tyrian purple from Tyr. Um, they traded literally every resource from like every Mediterranean people. So they became a huge hub for manufacturing because they had every resource there. So like gems, metals, textiles, dyes, woods, ivory, glass, 
Um, they were the first ones to kind of invent and use mass manufacturing processes. They, you know, made furniture and mirrors and pillows and jewelry and weapons. This is all like luxury goods. Yeah. They're all expensive. They're not necessary. No one needed a pillow. But it was nice to have. No, you know, in the in the old days, no one needed a pillow. Now I think everyone I guess needs so. a yeah. I need a pillow. Um, they made a ton of money from their silver mines in North Africa and Spain. And they actually did some really intense, like, agricultural uh, development. They used iron plows and irrigation and crop rotation and threshing machines. And they even invented hand-driven rotary mills and horse mills. Um, the other, well, there was more mentions in this. But the other cool invention I'm going to talk about is uh, the Cothon. Cothon or Cothon. I am not sure how you pronounce this word. So it's basically a Carthaginian harbor. They invented this system, like a man-made basin connected to the sea by a channel. And they divided it into a rectangular merchant harbor, followed by another inner protected harbor reserved for the military use only. And they had huge, they had 200 dock slips in their, wow. in their harbors. Like That's a big fleet. Um, yeah. And then they had other dock slips for, you know, passerbys, visitors, whatever. So... You know, a huge... And then Cothon just became a word for this type of ancient harbor all over the ancient world. Um, so really, the whole seafaring and harbor thing, they're, they're very advanced in that area. So a cool thing I found out, um, in 1964, they discovered a shrine to Astart in Italy. See? Astart. That's why I mentioned her, because she comes up again. Got it. Um, and, you know, she was definitely worshipped by the Phoenician people. And they found three gold tablets there with inscriptions in both Etruscan and Phoenician, which um, which gives us proof that the Phoenicians were present in the Italian peninsula at the end of the 6th century BCE. And that's long before Rome became a thing, you right. know, a powerful thing. So, you know, the, the language there implies a political and commercial alliance between Carthage and the Etruscans. And uh, that's actually backed up because Aristotle has made a statement that the Etruscans and Carthaginians were so close that they formed almost one people. Okay. So that, and the reason I mentioned that this is cool is because, like I said, we just don't know much about, much about Carthage and Phoenicia. And just right. to have a little bit of archaeological evidence is pretty cool. Um, so now we're at the unfortunate time in which Carthage will be no more. There were a lot of wars. Carthage was um, was very known for their prowess in wars. A lot of wars happened before this. Don't have time. Not going to get into those. We're pretty much just going to talk about the Punic Wars. Punic is actually a word we get from the Latin word for Carthage, poenus. So Punic Wars were named by the Romans as their wars with Carthage. Makes sense. Named from the Roman perspective. Obviously, you know. Yeah. Well, the victors get the right. Yeah. There you go. Don't say that online. Some people really hate that. Historians really hate that sentence, apparently. Fair enough. So there were three Punic Wars, starting in 264 BCE and ending around 146 BCE. So the first war, not really going to talk about it. Carthage just kind of was weakened after that. They lost some of their territory to Rome. Um, the second Punic War is one I found interesting because that's where Hannibal comes in. So Hannibal 
I had heard of him. I knew Hannibal, elephants, crossing the Alps. That's about yeah. all I had before this. Breaking I, a, a stone in half with heated wine is the story I had heard. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't know he was Carthaginian. I didn't know where he was from when I had heard of him before. So he was a you know, known as one of the greatest military leaders ever. He was a Carthaginian, Carthaginian general during the Second Punic War. And uh, he crossed the Alps in 218 BCE with elephants. And the reason this was, it was revolutionary, really, because, again, another, a map would be useful here. He went all the way on land, all the way around to Rome, instead of just sailing across like they always did. So this was like a, no one saw this coming. Because why would you do this? It's so dangerous and like such a long walk and trek for the army. Um, Especially when you're a sea power, like your ships are... Right. Okay. So it was a weird choice, but probably because it was a weird choice, it was a good choice. And Rome took massive casualties in this war. Um, But their manpower just could not be overcome. So Rome won the Second Punic War as well. And at this point, Carthage is basically like a, a Roman state. They only really had their North African territories, none of their other territories. And they pretty much had to do what Rome told them to. So... Again, how, how did Rome win this war and the first one when the Punic people were so much better at sea warfare and Rome had no experience whatsoever? Um, so Rome was pretty innovative as well, as you may know. So they reverse engineered their cap- the captured Carthaginian ships to see how they did their things. And they built their own ships in that style. They recruited experienced Greek sailors from you know, places that they conquered. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if recruited is a great word. I was Probably say. took into slavery and made them mm-hmm. help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they invented this cool thing called the Corvus device, which is like, can you imagine a bridge attached to the mast and lowered by cranks and pulleys right. to just sit on the other ship they're trying to board. Right. So they used them to board the Phoenician Carthaginian ships. And uh, that became a really important device that helped them win the war. One more time, also, just the manpower. The manpower was just yeah. unbeatable. You could slaughter thousands of Romans, and there's thousands more Romans to, you know, to battle you with their professional army and all. So we're left with the third and final Punic War, which began in 149 BCE. And you're kind of thinking, why would they need to go to war with their own state? Well, Roman senators, a lot of the Roman senators made it kind of a propaganda talking point to talk about how they should destroy Carthage. I know that there's no equivalence to this in the current world, so we're just not going to even go there. But, for example, Cato the Elder. Cato the Elder would make speeches in the Senate about any anything, budgets, grain production, women, probably not that. Um, and then, and then he would end every speech. Okay, I'm going to dust off my high school and one year of university Latin here. And he would say at the end of every speech, Caterum canseo Carthaginum esse delandum, meaning, furthermore, I am of the opinion that Carthage ought to be destroyed. Whatever he talked about in his speech, he would just end with that sentence. Just every it's, time. It's, it's a good close off, you know, it's catchy. 
That was his sign-off phrase, like a news anchor. Mm-hmm. And by the way, let's kill Carthage. <laughs> by the way, guys. Um, so basically, there's just a lot of animosity. They just hated each other. Rome hated Carthage. Carthage hated Rome. Um, Rome, Rome burned everything. They went over there. They, they burned the libraries. They burned the archives. They killed the people. They took about 50,000 as, as prisoners and sold them off into slavery. Um, and then they even went so far as to curse the site so that it will never be resettled. Like just by words. They just said mm. some kind of curse. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it just, it just said it was a spoken curse. I curse thee. Basically. Okay. Some people said they salted the land so nothing would grow, but that didn't happen. Hmm. That's a urban myth. You know, all those urban myths talking about ancient Roman Carthage. But um, So nearly a century after that fall at Carthage, um, Julius Caesar rebuilt Roman Carthage between 49 and 44 BCE. And then from then on, Carthage was a Roman city. Yes. Um, so yeah, it just kind of sucks that we don't get to know anything really good. And really about the day-to-day workings and culture, because even if a source was trying to be unbiased in the ancient times, which I don't know why they would, they wouldn't know those secret day-to-day cultural things, interactions, like the diff- the way that the society worked. They just wouldn't know all that stuff. So we just don't have that information, just because Rome hated them so much. Um, like, for example, as how much Rome hated them. Here's another lovely Latin term for you guys, uh, punica fides, and it basically just means punic faith. And you may have heard that term survived not till now, but into kind of mid, like, 15, 16, 1700s. People would still use that in their writings. So, you know, ye of punic faith. Anyways, it, it was the Latin term for double dealing and double crossing someone. Oh, you of punic faith. You know, you double crossed me. Um, <laughs> I have heard that before. Oh, have you? Yeah. Oh, well, cool. So, I, like, my final point about Carthage is I just think it's a shame that they were so, like, powerful and inventive and influential in their world. And they were total contemporaries to the Greeks and Romans, Egyptians, all these cool places that we know so much about. And we just don't know anything about Carthage. It is too bad. Yeah. That sucks. Anything else to... Any, any questions? Any any comments or concerns? None for me today. Okay. Uh, well, like I said, feel free to offer me any feedback or corrections on anything I might have gotten wrong. But in general, I hope you learned a lot about Carthage. And I also hope you weren't bored when I talked about snails. I was not. Especially when you got to the hexabromine. It was hexaplex. Trunculus, actually. Oh, the Hufflepuffs. Got it. Okay. And thank you, everybody, who tuned in for our inaugural episode of Teach Me Something. Uh, Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And tune in next time for another chance to learn something new. 